you know, the funny thing about when you know your child is dead, the funny thing about that is there's always still that little piece in the background that says, please let me be wrong. Please let me be wrong. Please, God, just let me be wrong. Corey Kaufman had been missing for more than a year and a half when a hunter found his bones deep in the mountains. DNA confirmed his identity. This is his mother, Terry Hudson. I prayed. I begged God, please let me be wrong. But I wasn't. The discovery of Kaufman's remains in August 2013 made the newspapers. Investigators withheld details of the body's condition, but scraps of information circulated freely through the gossip networks in Stanislaus County, through bars and backyards and drug dens along Highway 99. A forensic exam of the remains provided no link to Frank Carson, the prominent Modesto defense attorney suspected of involvement. But Carson had become increasingly worried that the district attorney's office would somehow charge him. Carson opted for a brash frontal assault. He decided to run for district attorney. He wanted to unseat Birgit Flatiger, the very person threatening to prosecute him. Flatiger told me she saw his political campaign as a naked ploy to derail the Kaufman murder probe. Yeah, there's no other reason why he would run, right? I mean, he's he's a long-term criminal defense attorney, makes, I'm sure, a ton of money. (laughs) So there's no reason he would, there's no reason to run, except he's being investigated for homicide. Carson was a political novice, and his chances were slim against the entrenched incumbent. But it gave Carson a public platform to slam Flattiger's office as corrupt and dysfunctional. He accused her of vastly overusing wiretaps, the very tool that had been used against him. If by some fluke he won, the case against him could vanish. If he lost, he could frame the prosecution against him even more sharply as one of political retribution. I remember he made some comment about how he hates thieves. You know, murderers generally only do it once, but thieves are repeat offenders. Okay, right. On this day in March 2014, investigator Kirk Bunch was interviewing Kim Fletcher, an out-of-town prosecutor who had faced off against Carson a couple years earlier in court. Fletcher recalled an exchange she'd had with Carson, which the DA hoped would shore up its portrait of a man capable of killing a thief who had ventured onto his property. I think it was more along the lines of he would rather represent a murderer than a thief. Right. Because thieves keep on stealing over and over and... Yeah. And you can commit a murder and be okay after that. Anyone could lose their temper, lose it at some point, and commit a murder, but they usually don't reoffend and reoffend, but thieves never stop or something like that. Do you think they're actually going to file it? Uh, well, we're pushing forward. We're uh, we're pushing forward, and we're at the end. It's interesting because I mean, I read that about him going after the DA for wiring it up. So I'm thinking he's probably the subject of one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what? It, I mean, that's the thing movies are made of. Right. I think that's what he wants. Uh, he wants chaos. Yeah, he wants to make it look like you guys are retaliating now. See, that's exactly what he's done. I mean, pretty smart, actually. 
Carson lost his race for district attorney of Stanislaus County to Flattiger, but continued to outmaneuver her prosecutors in court. He dismantled a seven-year government effort to convict a local bail bondsman accused of holding clients against their will. He brought jury tampering claims against a prosecutor and a DA investigator and forced them to defend themselves against contempt of court charges. He had, in short, only accelerated his war against the DA on every possible front, even as his arrest loomed. Carson had not been able to stop Bunch and other investigators. They continued building a case, but it remained a flimsy one, lacking physical evidence. What they needed was an eyewitness. From the Los Angeles Times, this is The Trials of Frank Carson. I'm Christopher Gofford. This is Episode 3, The Incredible Evolving Story of Robert Woody. You're not in any trouble. You're not, you're not in any trouble. We just need to talk to you. It was early in 2014, six months after Corey Kaufman's fragmented skeleton had been found. A tipster had alerted police that a woman named Sonny was terrified of a man she'd been dating. He had been saying frightening things, bragging about a murder. His name was Robert Woody, a former handyman at a popular corner liquor store in Turlock called the Pop and Cork. Robert is very scary. Very scary. Police suspected Woody had played some role in Kaufman's death but couldn't prove it. And so they went to find Sonny, whose real name was Miranda Sue Dykes. She seemed eager to help. He started to talk weird and start being really scary. And I said, did you kill somebody? (laughs) Straight up. He started laughing. He goes... I'm all Corey Kaufman. And he goes, yeah, I did. That's what happens when you piss me off. Woody had watchful blue eyes of uncommon intensity. He had been a fixture at the pop and cork. He mopped up, stocked the shelves, helped with the plumbing. He was often seen out front smoking and chatting with customers. He would speak affectionately of Bobby Atwall and his brother, Dee, who ran the store. They'd help to get him off the street and to find a dentist to fix his neglected teeth. Woody was a former car thief who spent years running from cops. So he was surprised to find he enjoyed the company of local officers who frequented the store and who liked to drink in a private room the brothers kept in the back. One patrolman had spotted Woody in a police baseball cap and nicknamed him 5-0, which stuck. People said Woody was a nice guy except when he was on drugs. The brothers didn't want him around when he was high, and one of them accused him of stealing a 12-pack of Pepsi. By early 2014, when investigators had this conversation with his girlfriend, Woody was back in the grip of his crystal meth habit and hadn't worked at the pop and cork for months. Um, he told me Corey was unrecognizable. 
the way he looks at you, it's like <laughs> he stares, like tries to stare into your soul. It's scary. His whole family knows he did it. Everybody knows hey, he did Robert it. Robert Woody's family? Everybody knows he did it. Miranda Sunny Dykes thought she could get Woody to talk about Kaufman again. She had charges for drugs and child endangerment on her record, and Child Protective Services had taken her two young kids. She agreed to wear a wire, hoping cops could help in return. If we can get a confession of him on tape, that would be awesome. I Obviously, I can, you know what? whether or not that works out, I can get you help. Woody lived in a small house just three doors down from the Poppincork. There, in the back bedroom, he took hits from a crystal meth pipe and told Miranda Dykes a vividly macabre story. So forth. So... He's just a missing person. Until they find a body. And a fat chance that's going to happen. Big fat chance. Are we talking about what's his name? Yeah, Corey Kaufman. Woody is telling her that Corey Kaufman was a nuisance, a waste of space. And he goes on to say that his body was fed to pigs. Seen a threat, eliminated threat. And nobody could say anything about it. The recording seems to suggest that he has not seen the news reports of the body's discovery. He launches into a detailed description of how a pig can devour a human being. To get the pig to do its work, you needed to chop up the body. You needed to extract the teeth. Never put it all in one spot. Oh. I was told he got shot, and then I was told he got stabbed. People are confusing me. Stabbed. Shot. When he jumped over that fucking fence, that was his last jump. Be all this alone. I mean, nobody was with me. I would come over there to steal more shit off the fucking property and shit. For scrap iron, aluminum, fucking steel. It's not clear whether Woody is affirming that Kaufman was shot, stabbed, or both. He does insist he did the job alone. Woody's tale coincides with the law enforcement theory of the case that Kaufman had been raiding a property in Turlock that belonged to Woody's former defense lawyer. Carson. Frank Carson. He was so stupid and high on methamphetamine when he's talking to this girl that she's pumping him and she's taping him for the cops because she has got a probation case, a drug case, she's lost custody of her children, and they told her that they would fix all that. This is Frank Carson reflecting on the so-called confession. He told me he didn't believe Woody had anything to do with killing Corey Kaufman. And almost as soon as the arrest warrant went out for Woody, Miranda Dykes seemed to regret what she'd set in motion. The confession she had elicited from him did not convince her. She was struck by the discrepancy between what Woody had told her, that he chopped up Corey Kaufman's body and fed it to pigs, and what she had apparently learned 
which is that a body had actually been recovered in some form. When investigators raided Woody's house, Dykes was there to confront them. He didn't do it. I know he did it. He confessed to you that he did it. To sound macho, but how can they find his body if it was all cut up and fed to the pigs? Robert Woody was shuttling between cheap local hotels to avoid arrest, but soon surrendered at the DA's office. He was charged with the murder of Corey Kaufman and held on a no-bail warrant. That day, Woody sat for one of many in-custody interrogations in which his story would shift and change and evolve. Woody would be the lead witness in the case against Frank Carson and his co-defendants, the only supposed eyewitness to the crime that prosecutors could produce. The many parts of Woody's story that contradicted the state's case, prosecutors would dismiss as the misguided falsehoods of a scared and confused man with an antisocial streak. The parts of his story that served their case, prosecutors pronounced true. Robert, you confessed to a murder. Do you understand that? Do you understand? Confessed to a murder? What do you mean? You confessed. Okay. You understand? Do you understand the gravity of that? Woody sat at a table wearing a hooded sweatshirt, looking despondent and exhausted. He'd been up for days on the run, drinking and smoking crystal meth. Investigator Kirk Bunch read Woody his Miranda rights. Bunch showed him a photograph of the victim, and Woody claimed not to recognize him. That's Corey Kaufman. Napoli would know him? Yeah. He was the person I was killed. He was the person that was killed. Mm. Well, I didn't do shit to him. Woody had made so-called confessions of some kind to family members, including his mother. Bunch said Woody's own mom put him at the scene of Kaufman's death. Bunch showed Woody photographs of Frank Carson and of Bobby Atwal and his brother Dee, who ran the pop and cork. Bunch said they would all pin the murder on him. Okay, Robert, okay, at the end of the day, okay, these guys, okay, are going to throw you under the bus, okay? And this gentleman right here, photograph 29 that I showed you, Mr. Carson, okay, they're all going to say, you killed Corey Cotton. Are you ready for that? Bunch said Kaufman had been lured to his death on Carson's property, and he knew that Woody had been there. So you know what that is? You know what that is? Let me explain to you. Okay? It's a first-degree murder lying in wait with special search. What's that? We can go for the death penalty or life without possible parole. So it's very important to you, it's very important to you, to tell exactly what happened. Because that can mitigate that. A bunch had just threatened Woody with two bleak futures, death in a cell at the end of a life term or death in the execution chamber. Such threats sometimes manage to elicit the truth from a reticent criminal. They also provide a powerful incentive to lie. What do you know about Corey Kaufman? The murder of Corey Kaufman. Investigator Bunch told him that this was his, quote, golden opportunity to cooperate, that Woody knew things that police had held back from the public 
and therefore had to be involved. And I have numerous people who sit in this chair that come back to me later on and say, oh, man, thank you, and I'm glad. I'm glad I talked to you. Because Robert, I care. Believe it or not, I care. I care about you. Robert, I heard it come from your mouth that you yeah, did. Yeah. Your love things come from my mouth. I know, I know you grew up on the streets and you've done your some time, you know, on the streets. And I know that, you know, you're a tough guy and all that stuff. But I know you have emotions inside. Actually, I was told by your parents that you even have a hard time sticking a worm in a, on a hook. Bunch told him that Corey Kaufman's family missed him and cried for him. That maybe he, Woody, didn't know Kaufman would die, that things just got out of hand. Bunch worked to undermine Woody's trust in the Atwal brothers, telling him that he'd heard them denigrate him on the wiretaps. These two right here talked about that they were way better than you. Like you were just like gum on their shoes, basically. And they're, they're right. I don't believe they're right. Robert, Robert, I don't believe they're right. I'm being very honest and candid. And Robert, I'm being very sincere, okay? Hey, we'll get through this. I care. All your family are going to be witnesses against you. Do you want to put them in that position? Bunch emphasized that he'd been on the case since April 2012, nearly two years. The reports filled ten binders. And Frank Carson's threats and bluster, from filing complaints against investigators to running for DA, had not stopped the investigation. I have other cases have convicted people with less. I mean, they do. Woody kept saying his story of Kaufman's murder and dismemberment was just empty talk, total fabrication based on rumor and imagination. I made it all up is what he's saying here. Woody did freely acknowledge that he had a link to Frank Carson. Three years ago, Woody said, he'd picked up a stolen property charge and needed a good lawyer. The Atwalls had introduced him to Carson, who got the case dropped with little effort and charged him no fee. But one day, he and Bobby Atwal had gone to Carson's office in downtown Modesto, and Carson had wanted a little favor. Carson was concerned about the theft of antiques from his property in Turlock, and he asked Woody and Bobby Atwal to determine whether the thieves were still living nearby. But Woody insisted that Carson had never suggested violence and had expressly told them not to cause trouble. This is real important, Robert, okay? Did he say, hey, you know, teach him a lesson? No, he specifically said, he specifically said that. Don't get out and do that and stupid. Your trip to the law office, did it happen before the murder? This is Bunch's partner, DA investigator Steve Jacobson. And if so, that makes sense because that starts this all in motion. But the timeline didn't fit the theory. The visit to Carson's office, the favor he requested, had happened in late May 2012, two months after Kaufman's disappearance. Woody insisted over and over that his supposed confession was just talk, a mixture of invention 
and rumors he'd heard on the street. Then why did you say it? Stupid, I'm stupid. About a month after Kaufman's disappearance, Bobby Atwal had reported his Chevy Silverado stolen, and it was found burned near an almond orchard. This was not an uncommon crime in the area, and insurance had paid the claim. Now, Woody said that he had burned it, and he'd done it at Atwal's behest, because Atwal needed to pay off a credit card. The detectives tried to incorporate this into their theory. Maybe it was really burned to eliminate traces of Kaufman's remains. Woody seemed puzzled by this theory, as he did by many of their questions as the hours stretched on. At one point during the interrogation, Woody felt trapped enough that he threatened to commit suicide. Why would you do something like that? Because I ain't going out for something stupid like this that I didn't fucking do. Whoever it is, is out there. Woody was taken to the bathroom in an investigator's company. This part wasn't recorded. Whatever happened in the bathroom seemed to change the course of the whole interview, if not the case itself. He told me to tell them what they wanted to hear, Woody would later say to his defense investigator, according to a defense memo. So that's what I did. I told them what they wanted to hear. When he returned from the bathroom break, Woody now said he saw something, somewhere, on the night Corey Kaufman disappeared. Where was it at? Somewhere, but you mean... Cops presented Woody with a scenario designed to put him at the supposed crime scene while allowing him to portray himself in a minimally culpable light. In this version, Woody left the pop and cork that night with D. Atwal around 11 p.m. or midnight and drove to Carson's lot, where they found Bobby, also known as Baljeet, attacking Kaufman. You didn't see Baljeet rip off, rip off on Corey. And you tried to pull him off, and then you left. Is that what happened or no? Yeah. Okay. Woody insisted he hadn't touched Kaufman himself at all. I did not punch him, I didn't kick him, I didn't spit on him, I didn't scratch him, I didn't shit to that kid. Modesto Police Detective John Evers joined in the interrogation. It seems like you're not being completely honest. You're holding back, you know, about where the body was not buried and was left on top of the ground. How'd you find that out? Like I said, that's words on the streets. I mean, you guys call me a liar, so... In Woody's supposed confession to his girlfriend, he had gotten more wrong than right about the condition of Kaufman's remains. There was no evidence in the autopsy report that pigs had ever approached the body, nor of cleaver or saw marks on the bones. And Woody had not given his girlfriend a specific spot where the body was dumped. Yet Woody had played into the investigator's expert hands, sinking himself even more hopelessly into a legal abyss. Along with his taped confession to his girlfriend, he had now, in a post-Miranda interview, put himself at the scene of a fight that police believed had led to Kaufman's death. But this was far from the final version Woody would tell.
Over and over, Robert Woody kept trying to take back his so-called confession. Detectives refused to sanction a version of reality in which his confession might be fake. He was still repeating his denials a couple of weeks after his arrest, and investigators responded by describing still more grim consequences of his failure to cooperate. DA investigator Steve Jacobson told him he'd never see his kids again, except during prison visits. He said, with your mom's health conditions, you may not even be around to comfort her when she needs you most. Plus, Jacobson warned, the Atwal brothers would kill him when they realized they couldn't control him. I know Bobby, they have, they have hearts. They are, they they, are, they, they, they're, they're they are not your friends. They do not want to find I'm, you to send you a care package. Woody begged Jacobson to just tell him what he needed to say so that he could go home. He said he was willing to make, quote, false statements if it helped them. The story that sets me free, Woody called it. After dropping Woody off at jail, Jacobson and fellow investigator Dale Lingerfeld had a conversation they apparently did not realize was being recorded. Apparently, Woody's vacillating story had affected the thinking of a DA supervisor who seemed to worry it weakened the case. It might not be possible, at least not yet, to charge the Atwals or Carson. So now they're all saying it all hinges on Woody. What do you think? What's your take on all that? I, I, I know he's involved. I know he was there when it happened. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think that he is just scared because he did. I think he actually did something with Corey. Yeah. I think he probably put some boots to him with it. And um, he knows he's implicated in a murder. See, the evidence is, it, the stuff we have is awesome. So it just really push, pisses me off that he's saying, oh, if you, have, if you don't have this, we don't have Dalgeet, Dalgeet. The conversation points to how indispensable the authorities understood Robert Woody's cooperation to be, and how a vague and wavering story would undermine it. Woody insisted on his innocence even when he didn't know police were listening, as in a series of secretly monitored jailhouse phone calls with his father, a former preacher. They don't got no evidence, they no concrete evidence. All they got you is shooting your mouth off and they think they really got something. They ain't got crap. And I'm going to tell you something, son. This whole thing ain't nothing but a setup and a filthy, stinking, dirty, rotten lie. They think, they think they got somebody that can help them and they ain't even got the right guy that can help them. They better go get the daggum guy that can help them. I can't help them. I don't know how. We're not going to lose hope, Hope is all we got. That's what my pastor told me, honey. Just hang on to hope, baby. Listen, son. They're using psychology on these, what they're doing. They're not stupid. That's what they went to school for. That's what they was in the police for. for. They got money, which is their power. Right? Mm -hmm. That lawyer's got money is his power. What do you have? You have nothing. Nothing. It's all psychology, son. Daddy keeps telling you that. The system is nothing but the Antichrist. Woody languished in a cell for the next 16 months. His recorded conversations and his letters from jail reflected an increasing loneliness and desperation. That was the backdrop of his lengthy interrogation in August 2015. DA investigator Steve Jacobson was pressing him to confirm a story that he'd threatened Corey Kaufman shortly before his disappearance. Had he yelled, Your ass is grass outside Kaufman's Turlock home? 
So it was, it was yelled loud enough for Corey and anyone else that could have been either in the front or the side or the back of the house to hear. Not the back of the house, but I mean, I imagine it would be loud enough that the neighbor across the street can Well, she obviously... Again and again, Woody would use those two words, I imagine. Defense attorneys would conclude that he meant this literally, that his eventual story was a work of the imagination, midwifed by cops. It's a basic principle of a good interrogation that cops don't feed details to suspects. Yet when Woody found himself floundering, to place an event chronologically, for example, his interrogators jumped in repeatedly to help. I can tell you exactly when this conversation occurred. The neighbor said it was two days before Corey goes missing. So this is on about the 28th or 29th of March. Woody was poised to be the DA's star witness against Frank Carson, but he was holding out, insisting that he hadn't killed Corey Kaufman and had lied about being at the scene of his death. I mean, I can tell you right now, you mean that, you mean that, that there was a lie that I told you, but you mean... You were very descriptive, Robert. You wanted more than I can't produce. After a year and a half in jail, Woody was pale, his hair long and shaggy, his muscular frame gone pudgy, as if he was beginning to liquefy. He sat at a small circular table in a red and white striped jail outfit, his hands shackled. The investigators worked hard to undermine whatever loyalty or affection Woody might retain for the Atwal brothers. Didn't he see that they had used him all along and paid to fix his teeth as a way to keep him quiet? After further pressing, Woody said yes, he'd seen Bobby Atwal attacking Kaufman on Carson's property. One of his interrogators was a highway patrol sergeant named Kevin Dombey. And where is Corey at that point? I imagine he'd be in a front with him, you know what I mean? The word imagine from now on means, in my mind's eye, what I'm thinking, right? So you can use that word. Uh, but, but we don't want imagine to be, I'm guessing, okay? Woody swiveled his head between the three men surrounding him, Jacobson, Dombey, and his court-appointed defense attorney, Martin Baker, as if trying hard to please them, trying to pick up clues as to what they wanted. Okay, was Corey bleeding that night? I imagine he probably was, you mean? In much of this account, Woody was not offering a narrative so much as responding to the detectives' questions as they built a narrative, feature by feature. They suggested details, and he agreed to them. Now, Woody vaguely recalled seeing a gun at the scene. Can you describe the gun at all? Like dark barrel, light barrel, you know, silver, black. Anything about the gun? Rifle, though, right? Long guns. I think it'd be more like a pellet gun. Woody said he and the Atwals loaded up the body in the Chevrolet Silverado. Where did you go? I took it to the mountains. That night? Hmm? That night you took it to the mountains? Mm-hmm. They did, not me. Okay. Well, I was with them, didn't we? Then Woody said, no, he went with just one of the brothers that night. Then he said... No, the trip to the mountains happened sometime later, that they actually took the body back to the poppin' cork that night and buried it in a shallow grave in the attached dirt lot. If details about the burial did not spring immediately to Woody's mind, Sergeant Dombey was happy to assist. Uh, shovel, pick, what kind of tools do you have there? This is 
Justice Reynolds. Dombey suggested how deep they had buried the body. Two feet. Yeah, about two feet. Later, when I asked about these questionable interviewing methods, the DA told me that Dombey's experience was as an internal affairs investigator with the Highway Patrol, so he worked differently than a homicide detective. To harmonize Woody's story with the timeline underpinning the state's theory, Sergeant Dombey offered some help. Bobby Atwal had reported his truck stolen on April 27, 2012, and it was found that day near an orchard burned. Dombey informed Woody of the date and of his theory that the truck must have carried Kaufman's corpse to the mountains sometime before that. Was the body transported to the mountains in the truck or no? Yeah. So was it transported before the 27th? Yep, because the truck got burnt at the same night, but when he got back in it, got burnt. Okay, so the body's driven up that night, drive back, go out and burn it. Under this version of the story, Corey Kaufman's body had been buried in a shallow grave for about a month before it was dug up for the trip to the mountains. But Woody couldn't say what route they took up there. To help, Jacobson called up a Google map on his laptop. To show Woody. And here is LaGrange, this area here, Coulterville, then here is Mariposa over here. And this is where the body was found up in here. During a break in the interrogation with Woody out of earshot, Sergeant Dombey took a moment to express his deep appreciation to Woody's court-appointed attorney, Martin Baker. You've been great, Dombey said. I can't thank you enough. I reached out to Baker, who told me this. Everything I did for Mr. Woody, I did with his best interest in mind, without any regard to what burden it might place on me. What he said next, during his exchange with Dombey, would invite harsh criticism from other defense attorneys in the case about how well he had represented his client. I want to close this case, the attorney said. I don't want to be stuck in a six-month-long murder trial with this guy. Many hours into the interview, Robert Woody added another grisly flourish to his story. Just before burying the body beside the pop and cork, he cut off the fingers and toes to prevent identification. He said he used a saw. What kind? Sergeant Dombey was eager to help. He drew a picture of a saw. Around this point, it seemed to dawn on investigators that their leading questions might compromise Woody's account. We want to make sure that these are your answers and that we're not necessarily putting words in your mouth or describing our stuff and not letting you describe things. So we want to kind of backtrack and make sure that these are the things that you're saying, that you're the one doing the drawings, that you're the one that's that, that's, that's providing this information. We don't want to make it look like so we're coaching you in so any we, way. So we, okay, there, is, there is no coaching. My lawyer's right here. Right, exactly. Uh, but we want to make sure that you're the one that's telling us this information. And it's been a long day for everybody. And, we're and, kind if, of, and if we're filling things <laughs> in... We're tired, you're tired. After cutting off the fingers and toes, Woody said, he put them in a sack and threw it in the Tuolumne River. 
It's just like you mean, okay, I got them, okay, uh, I can't go put them in my pocket, can't go put them in my fridge, you know what I mean, uh, or I'm putting them out. Soon afterward, a caravan of law officers accompanied Woody and his lawyer into the Stanislaus National Forest in Mariposa County. It's a vast, old-growth forest in the Sierra Nevada with pines and firs roamed by bears and mountain lions. This was a moment of crucial importance, a major test of whether Woody was telling the truth. If Woody could lead them to the remote mountain spot where hunters had discovered Corey Kaufman's skeletal remains, this would be persuasive evidence of his involvement in the crime. It could be used to link the Atwal brothers to the crime and could seal Frank Carson's conviction. But if Robert Woody demonstrably had no idea how to get to the spot, it would undermine his account and perhaps inflict fatal damage on the state's case. If ever there was a good occasion to turn on their recording devices, it would be on the trip into the mountains with Robert Woody. But the custodians of the law in Stanislaus County would turn over no recording of this journey, if they ever made one. The video they did produce does not begin until the group had arrived at the scene, deep in the thick forested mountains. They had already parked and walked over to the general area of the body dump. Woody is shackled in his red and white jail stripes amid a team of cops. They stand at the top of a ravine and Detective Corey Brown is filming from an area a few feet below, mere feet from where the bones were found. We are somewhere outside of uh, the Mariposa Coulterville area of the Stanislaus National Forest. Robert, uh, just a few moments ago we were talking about the woods out here. Does anything look familiar to you at all? Woody said it had been night and it had been dark. But this looked like the spot where he and Bobby Atwal had carried the body down the hill. Given the conditions he just described, the likelihood seemed remote that he would be able to isolate the spot more than two years later. If this troubled the team of law officers, they did not express it. You had the feet, so Bobby had the front. Okay, can you give me an estimation of... Is it about where Detective Brown is? Is it halfway between us? Is it further beyond him? It wouldn't all lit up in there, but you must proud of where he is. The camera wheels around as Detective Brown moves among crunching leaves on the forest floor. He says about, come, come closer to me, where it levels out. Keep coming. Keep coming. He says about right in there. Deputy District Attorney Marlisa Ferreira told me that this event made a powerful impression on her. He said, no, back, 10 more feet, 10 more, no, now go to the right, go to the right. He kept looking at it, he kept looking around like this, and he goes, it's right about there. And Chris, it was five feet from where we found the skull. Seriously. In the middle of the Stanislaus National Forest. How would he know the location so precisely, though, if he came up at night to dump it there? He said a quarter of a mile, and he just, in his mind, walked a quarter of a mile, I guess. I don't know. He, it was unbelievable. We, we all had, like, goosebumps. It was crazy. It, I mean, just, stuff like that never happens. 
I've watched Detective Brown's tape of this scene repeatedly, and what I can't see are the evidence marker flags stuck in the ground where police found the bones. Brown seemed to make no effort to show them, but we know they were there. Brown's own written report says they were. Why did the flags matter? Because Woody could have seen them, and they would have shown at a glance exactly where the bones had been found, thereby rendering this whole exercise a farce. Ferreira says the flags weren't visible from where Woody was standing on the road, but admits none of the law officers on the mountain that day recorded the site from this vantage. She also insists Woody had walked them down the road to the scene, but again, no one recorded it. I wondered how this was possible in the year 2015 when smartphones were already ubiquitous. When I asked Ferreira, she replied, we were running low on battery. It would have been a waste of battery to begin taping as he was walking since we did not know where he was going to stop, if at all. There were other good reasons to doubt Woody's story, even on its own terms. In the interrogation room, he said he'd thrown the severed toes and fingers in the Tuolumne River. Now he said he'd taken them to the mountains and thrown them in the trees. His story was constantly evolving, gaining and losing details, like a novel in progress cycling through multiple drafts to satisfy an editor's stringent requirements. As prosecutors worked to build a case against Frank Carson, Woody positioned himself for a sweetheart deal. He was eager to maximize his value as a witness, apparently egged along by his mother. And so in still another version, Woody now said that Frank Carson himself had been at the murder scene. What happened when Carson came up to where D was with the gun. He handed him the gun. Who handed who the gun? Say D. D handed who? Carson. Carson the gun? Yeah. Okay. This was an explosive revelation. At last, prosecutors had their eyewitness placing the malign Uncle Frank, the supposed ringleader, with a murder weapon in his own hand. What does Carson do once he has a gun? Oops. Except at least one member of Woody's defense team didn't believe it. This was attorney Bruce Perry, who told me he drove to the jail to confront Woody about this new account and said nobody's going to believe this stupid story. Perry told me, I tried to keep him from committing perjury. Woody was in a panic about authorities catching him in a lie and yanking the plea deal he desperately wanted. And so his defense team wrote to the prosecutor saying he wanted to apologize. He had lied in a misguided attempt to help the DA. Quote, Mr. Woody would like you to know that he felt pressured by his mother following a recent visit by her to incorporate into his own statement certain embellishments. End quote. The part about Carson being at the scene, the part about Carson being handed the gun, that was admittedly fiction. The part about Bobby Atwal and his brother killing Kaufman, the hasty burial, then the disinterment and the final body dump in the mountains, 
All that Woody would stand by, and the DA would use. It's hard to imagine how Robert Woody might have rendered himself less credible. In another county, prosecutors might have balked at putting him on the stand as the spine of their case against a prominent local defense attorney. The Trials of Frank Carson is written and reported by me, your host, Christopher Gofford, for the Los Angeles Times. Our producers are Lori Galaretta and Sabrina Fang. Alex McGinnis is our composer and sound designer. Misha Stanton is our mix engineer. Our editor is Steve Clow. Our executive producers are Ben Adair at Western Sound and Abby Fentress-Swanson at the LA Times. Special thanks to Shelby Grad, Julia Turner, and Kimmy Yoshino. If you like what you're hearing, become a Los Angeles Times subscriber. You'll get special bonus episodes of this podcast. Hi, it's your host, Christopher Gofford again. Here's a reminder that LA Times subscriber support makes podcasts like this one possible. Subscribe now to get exclusive bonus episodes that will give you the story behind this show. We will share interviews with experts who will weigh in on the case, and we will play extra tape that sheds light on important parts of our story. Subscribe today to listen. Go to latimes.com forward slash exclusive dash podcasts. Thanks.